Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jamie Brickhouse. Now, it would have been an eye popper on a six foot two man, but on a four foot eight man, truly a third leg. That and more. But before that, let me talk about something that's on everybody's minds. As you know, the effects of the coronavirus and what's being done to prevent the spread of it are going to make it hard for a lot of people to make a living, and it's going to make it a lot harder for us here at risk as well. You know, we've always we've always struggled to be making that profit here at risk, but we have always so dearly believed in what we do that we are still dead set and determined to plow ahead and and produce even more content actually now we on the risk and story studio teams have had to cancel all of our upcoming live shows and in-person storytelling workshops for at least the next three or four months this means we're going to lose thousands of dollars uh, every month that we simply really cannot afford to lose And we still have a team of over 20 people to pay. So we are, like I said, we're going to think of ways to hold events and classes online. Uh, We're thinking of coming out with an all-new podcast in this time as well. Hopefully make up as much of that lost revenue as possible. But these are very uncertain times. And we can't be sure how all of that is going to go just yet all these online events and classes and new projects we're trying to start here so if you love risk and you want to help support us during these difficult times please go to patreon.com slash risk and become a member for any amount you can afford whether it's one dollar five dollars up to one hundred dollars per month Every little bit helps, and if you prefer to make a one-time donation or help us any other way, email me at kevin at risk-show.com, and I'll tell you how you can do that. There is an enormous amount of bonus content over there at Patreon, so there's a lot to be gained from becoming a member. We upload a new story every week that you've never heard before. This week's, it's from the legendary Beth Lapidus, and it sounds a little bit like this. So he charts the whole property, and he says, well, let me tell you this. You've got two vortexes on the property and a stargate in the bedroom. So yeah, that's just this week's story. There are dozens and dozens of them over there at patreon.com slash risk. So thank you so much, everyone. Look out for announcements about all the online events we're going to be holding coming up. And the more you support us on patreon.com slash risk or pay to attend one of our online events or classes, the easier it'll be for us to make it through this difficult time. Also, if there's one thing human beings aren't great at, it's predicting the future. I mean, no amount of crystal balls or fortune cookies or tea leaves could predict, you know, (laughs) some of this world we're living in right now. But unpredictability is also what keeps life amazing and interesting. The trick is to enjoy the ride without worrying too much about what's around the corner. And one way to worry less 
is to get the right life insurance. That's where Policy Genius can help. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. You could save $1,500 or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy. They can also find you the right home insurance, auto insurance, disability insurance, pet insurance. So if you haven't found a play-by-play breakdown of your future inside a crystal ball or a cookie, that's okay. Be prepared for anything with life insurance. In just a few minutes, you can find your best price and apply at policygenius.com. Policy Genius We'll always get the future wrong. Better get life insurance right. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Errol Garner behind me now. We're calling this week's episode Twists, stories where something unexpected took over. Oh, I I will tell everyone I am recording this on Sunday, March 15th, 2020. And we are dealing right now in our country and in the world with, I I have to say, it's something unlike anything I've ever seen in my lifetime. I mean, in my lifetime, there have been epidemics like AIDS, but this particular COVID-19, this particular coronavirus spreads so quickly and so easily that ah, we're we're looking now like we are going to be quarantined in our homes for a couple of months. Uh, You know, I flew to Reno to do the show there, and then immediately upon arriving, it became clear that we were going to have to cancel the show. So I just sat in a hotel room for a couple of days and flew back. I was very thankful to be able to fly back. I'm so concerned about our entire risk family, about all of our listeners and and storytellers. You know, a lot of us, I think, are very worried right now about some of the older loved ones in our lives, like my parents, for example, are particularly at risk right now. And we're going to see some shock waves in our society, in our lifestyles, in our ability to keep our businesses running, in our government. I will say this, you know, at Risk and the Story Studio, we have always, (laughs) you know, we have always struggled to make a profit, but we are going to figure out, we are going to figure out 
how to do so without live shows for a while, right? Without in-person workshops for a while. Thankfully, uh, you know, a lot of our business is online. So we are going to be as creative as possible to keep bringing you wonderful content, keep bringing you wonderful workshops, keep everything thriving as best we can. We're, you know, obviously we're going to be taking some hits and surprises. And I think one of the things that is reassuring is to know that we're all in this together. You know, that we are all being affected in one way or another. And so it's so crucial to stay grounded, you know, meditate, go over what you're grateful for. Tell the people in your life who you love that you love them. Stay connected with them. We're thinking of coming out with a whole nother podcast now that is family friendly because I think it's very important for people during a time of social distancing, I think is what they're calling it, to hear human beings share as fully and honestly as they do here. And, you know, a family-friendly podcast would be something that people could recommend to friends and family without having to worry about trigger warnings or anything like that. If you want to chat with us, brainstorm with us about that idea, we'll be talking about it at the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook. But just to be totally clear, that family-friendly podcast idea, that would be a totally separate podcast. We have every intention in the world to keep Risk, our original podcast, uncensored and to keep it going as many years into the future as we possibly can and if you want to ensure that the best thing to do is to go to patreon.com slash risk and become a member there but also reach out to us let us know how you're doing let us know your own stories from this period we really do think of Risk, the story studio, all of our listeners, fans, and storytellers, and staff, we we think of it all as one big family. And we want to make as much use as we can of sharing online in order to give one another moral support and connection. Anyway, we have a wonderful show today. We have two stories from New York, two from Washington, D.C. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Hilary Sigismondi, a story that she shared in D.C. But before that, a story that was shared years ago, back when Risk was still at the Bell House in Brooklyn. This is Jamie Brickhouse. He's telling a story that is an adaptation of a story that he tells in his memoir, Dangerous When Wet, Booze, Sex, and My Mother. You can find out more about that at jamiebrickhouse.com. Here's Jamie now with a story we call The Short and Long of It. Thank you, Kevin. You wouldn't notice Les Homme Bookstore unless you're looking for it. 
It's on a side street, and the gray metal door with its blacked-out window fades into the New York City streetscape. Les Hommes is not a Barnes & Noble kind of joint, nor is it a cozy little hole-in-the-wall specializing in used and rare books. Les Hommes is a gay porno store <laughs> with buddy booths in the back. Now, buddy booth is a quaint term for anonymous sex chamber. And even though books aren't sold there, some of the patrons are decidedly used, if not rare. <laughs> now, les hommes means the men in French. Merci beaucoup. Very classy. Now, back in the pre-grinder 1990s, les hommes was my fallback option for cheap and sleazy, I mean quick and easy sex, when nothing panned out at the gay bars. So one 1997 drunken night, after I had been bumper-carring around all the gay bars like a living version of that Uncle Sam poster, I want you, and you, and you! But nobody wanted me! So, for whatever reason, my tallish, gingerish, thinnish, 20-something-ish looks were not appealing that night. So I hit Lazome. Now, I bypass the VHS porno videos and head straight to the cashier window. Uh, one for the back, please, I say, pushing my $8 through the money slot. The Pakistani man behind the bulletproof cashier window stares through me like a zombie. I mean, he could have been working uh, as a toll booth clerk on the New Jersey Turnpike. Kachunk. I hear as he depresses an unseen button that releases the creaky turnstile to gain access to the buddy booths in the back. Now there's a sign over the turnstile that reads, no re-entry, no refunds, not responsible. <laughs> the four lost and stolen goods part has fallen off, but not responsible just about sums it up in a place like this. Now, the buddy booth section consists of a long row of plywood cells about three feet square with doors that open inward and a metal slide lock at the top. And each booth features a small screen flickering blue movies. But what I find so exciting about a sleazy place like this is the thrill of the unknown. I mean, you just never know who's lurking behind those doors. It's like a, a gay porno version of let's make a deal. <laughs> so I'm there for a reason. So I decide to check out the offerings on hand and I patrol the hallway like a jailhouse warden on final bed check. <laughs> Crip keeper in booth number one. Eh, keep moving. Booth number two, darkness, invisible. Which is to say that the transient occupant is hiding in the shadows inside because the door is just barely creaked open. Mm, not a good sign. <laughs> Several well-oiled porn stars in booths three and four. On the screen, that is. Now the last booth is a bit of an oasis. The guy is about my age, height, and weight. And he has a five o'clock shadow that adds to his sex appeal in a... George Michael kind of way. So I loiter outside of his booth. He gives me the look of love. I return his gaze. So I start to enter his booth, and then he holds up his hand in a halt and says, uh, sorry, buddy, 
taking a break. Ouch. Words are rarely spoken in places like this, and when they are, they are those. And they're the gentle way of saying, go pound sand. I mean, not only did it hurt, but it infuriated. I mean, taking a break from what? All the other pageant winners strutting their stuff on this dismal runway? I mean, I'm just as good looking as he is, and didn't he give me the eye? And then I realized, he wasn't looking at me. He was looking at the porn playing on the screen above my head. Ah, the humiliation of unrequited love. (laughs) So I go back to patrolling the hallway in that bored way that you check the refrigerator between commercial breaks, (laughs) hoping that food you want to eat that wasn't there before (laughs) will somehow magically appear. (laughs) So I end up back in front of darkness, invisible, This time, the door is opened a little bit wider, but there's still no sign of the occupant. And then I hear, pss, pss. (laughs) I look around. Pss, pss. I look down. Darkness. Visible. And there he is. A little person. A very little person. About four foot eight. A dwarf. Wow! I mean, I thought I had sampled the whole range of male flavors, but this would be a first. And aren't there two kinds of dwarfs, proportionate and disproportionate? So as I'm sitting there thinking what to do, he gives me a head nod and a hand wave to inviting me in. And I think, you know, he's awfully cute in his red plaid shirt and his khaki pants and his short brown hair parted on the side. And you know what? This is just the kind of adventure that keeps me coming back to a place like this. (laughs) So I accept his invitation to be his buddy booth buddy. And I enter his cell. And as soon as I close the door and slide the lock at the top closed, he pulls down his britches. Out pops... A staggering prize (laughs) of manhood. Now, it would have been an eye popper on a six foot two man, but on a four foot eight man, truly a third leg. (laughs) Definitely a disproportionate dwarf. (laughs) He invites me to sample his supply. I eagerly accept. I squat down on my haunches, but this merely brings us at eye level, crowding the booth. So he scoots away from me to the corner diagonally opposite. Now, remaining on my haunches, I let my upper body fall to bisect the booth, and then I grab onto his hips, and I go to town on his Blue Ribbon Award winner. I'm performing a painful modern dance that would make a a Martha Graham dancer ache. But believe me, every uncomfortable contortion is worth it. Then after a while, he starts tugging on my crotch, and I panic. I mean, I'm nowhere near his size. In fact, uh, I'll just say it, he dwarfs me by comparison. (laughs) I mean, will he be disappointed? Will he laugh at me? He keeps tugging. So I stand up and I feed him with ease. And after a while, he breaks the silence and he whispers, hey, you want to see if someone wants to join us? Sure, why not? Thinking maybe he is disappointed. So I turn and I face the door, 
and wait for him to take the lead since it was his idea and it's kind of his booth. (laughs) Nothing. And then I feel him tugging my trouser leg. I look down. He's pointing up. I follow the arrow of his index finger to the metal latch in front of my eyes. Oh. I open the door. We don't get any takers. And you know what? There's no one we want to take. So we gleefully go back to each other. And when we finish, and we finish big, we leave each other the way most such encounters usually end. Uh, See you around, buddy. Uh, Yeah, thanks. And when I'm back on the street, I'm kind of elated by the whole experience. I mean, not only was it totally unexpected, but the sex was really hot. But then I feel, I don't know, a, a twinge of guilt. I mean, did I do it just for the novelty of the experience? Did I use him? About three months later, right before the Christmas holidays, I'm at my local gay bar, and I find myself eye to eye with him. I'm standing on the floor, he's standing on the bar stool. (laughs) The bartender introduces us, and I find out his name is Charlie. I also have my eye on a comely black Irish guy at the end of the bar. Now, neither Charlie nor I acknowledge our previous Laisome encounter. It's not uncommon in anonymous trysting circles to suddenly feign amnesia when a former trick crosses your path. But then Charlie and I get to talking about the upcoming holidays. I fucking hate Christmas, he says. Why? Because from Thanksgiving to New Year's, I'm working every day, sometimes three times a day. I'm an actor in the Radio City Christmas Spectacular. I don't ask him who he plays. I feel like that would be rude. (laughs) Then he slams down the rest of his drink. I gotta go pee. Do you mind? It takes me a second, and then I see him pointing to the floor from the bar stool. Oh, sure. I put him down on the floor, and he scurries off to the bathroom. And after a while, I notice that he hasn't returned. And what to my wandering eyes do appear? But Charlie, in the arms of my black Irish dream date. Well, how do you like that? I overhear him telling Black Irish about his acting career as Black Irish is tenderly caressing him. And when Black Irish's hands wander south and he discovers Charlie's hidden surprise, he rears back his head and smiles down at Charlie in delight. Charlie looks back up at him and gives an enchilat shrug. And then the, the guilt that I felt after I had left him at Les Hommes starts to hit me again. And it occurs to me why I felt guilty. I had pitied Charlie. Clearly, Charlie doesn't need my pity nor anyone else's. The laws of sexual attraction are myriad and Darwinian. We all use what we've got, and what we've got either attracts or repels. Sometimes my red hair is an asset, other times it's a deal breaker. Charlie happens to be a working actor with a big cock. In New York City, that's a highly marketable commodity. (laughs) Thank you. I said, come on, cocksuckers, Sammy, get your motherfucking mammy. We're going downtown to the cocksuckers ball. Fuck, suck, and fight. Tell the beginning of the broad daylight We don't need no goddamn taxi fare We're gonna trim them holes in a rocket chair 
take off all the rest. We're gonna play a little game called tag. Tomorrow night after I'm cocksuckers ball. Come on, you poor-ass singers and you big, big slingers. We're going downtown to the cocksuckers ball. Fuck, suck, and fight. Tell the beginning of the broad daylight We don't need no goddamn taxi fare We're gonna trim them holes in a rocking chair Take off all their rags We're gonna play a little game called tag Tomorrow night after Ron Cocksuckers born Cha-cha-cha-cha At the Ron Ron Cock After my divorce, my track record with men left something to be desired. I was with really good men. I actually was engaged to two of them. But I admit, I tended to focus on their flaws. And honestly, I could never understand this concept of like being so in love that you couldn't stand to be separated. Like that whole you complete me thing. (laughs) Couldn't stand it. Until I met Charles. So it's Labor Day weekend, 2014. And I'm sitting up at the bar and I'm waiting for my friend Mary Jo to show up. There's an Irish band playing out back, and I'm feeling pretty confident and cute in my little purple paisley summer dress. So to my left is this big teddy bear of a guy. He's got salt and pepper, like uh, shaved hair, and this baby smooth face. And he looks at me and grins and says hello. So the next thing you know, Mary Jo shows up, And the three of us spend the rest of the night doing shots of fireball, (laughs) laughing, and just generally carrying on like we usually do. Charles starts talking to me, and he starts talking about how much he loves being a dad and a papa to his grandchildren. And he also starts talking about his abusive father and how he never felt like his mother loved him. And I'm like, wow, this guy is so open and honest and vulnerable, right? I start telling him about this new church that I'm attending. And I say, you know, I'm a little nervous to bring this up because of what you might think of me. But I'm like, I've got to be authentic. And I say, Charles, you will never meet someone as honest as me. In fact, one time... I spent 30 minutes lying to the insurance guy on the phone trying to save some money, you know, telling him I lived in the county and didn't live in the city or whatever. And as soon as I hung up, I called him right back. And I was like, I lied, I can't do it. So Charles actually says to me, he's like, baby, I can take anything you throw my way. Bring it on. He actually asked me if he can go to church with me sometime. So within two months, Charles moved to Baltimore And by spring, he's moved in. I am happier than I've ever been in my life. Now I get what everybody's been talking about. This is what it's like to be madly in love. He listens. He goes grocery shopping. He cooks. He does laundry. He does my lawn. He does home improvement. 
We joined this organization called Couples Coaching Couples, which is an organization made up of couples who want to have an extraordinary relationship. Our couple spends the weekends going to pool parties and dancing. We even have a name for our couple, Chillery. And when we go to parties, people are like, Chillery! And I love it. And I know it's really obnoxious, but it was awesome. We make love to the soulful chanting music of Sonatum Car. I am like 100% completely like lost. I lose myself in his arms. I feel so safe. And one morning, I have my head on the pillow, and I look over, and I'm like, Charles, you were like too good to be true. Like, I can't believe this. It feels like a dream. And he takes my head in his hands, and he looks right at me. And he's like, this is real, baby. This is real. We're going to create a wonderful life together. And I just can't wait to marry this guy. And we get married, 2015, September. I love being married. And um, it's late afternoon on a Friday, early October. And I'm lying in our king-sized bed. And I'm reading a book. I'm waiting for Charles to come home because we're going to go away for the weekend to Bethany Beach. I've been really looking forward to this trip. So I got our pack bags next to our bed. I got my little dog Wilbur all curled up next to me. Sun's shining in and I'm feeling warm and toasty. I just took a nice soak and I have this real deep clawfoot bathtub. And I thought, you know, I better check to see what time it is. I'm like anxious to get going. And I look at my phone. And there's a private message from Charles's ex-wife, Sherry. And I'm like, huh, that's interesting. Like, why is she texting? Why is she messaging me? I've never even talked to her before. And the message says, Hillary, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you deserve to know. Charles and I are still married. Yeah. And he knows full well we never got a divorce. Everything in me just locks up, and I just, like, freeze. I don't know what to do with this, so I ask her to call me. She does, and she says, Hillary, Charles is a liar, and that's why his kids don't want to have anything to do with him. You really need to just get away from this guy. So I'm still, like, by this point, I'm, like, pacing back and forth. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me, right? Like, I like this man. I like being with him. I didn't know what to do. So I call my friend Amy. I'm like, Amy, you are not going to fucking believe this. I tell her the story. And she says, Hillary, leave now. Now, full disclosure, I had caught Charles in a few lies at this point. He had lied about his age, and he forgot to mention he had two ex-wives. But he had promised and assured me that was something he was working on, right? That's why he had put himself in therapy. So I was like, that was actually one of the things I liked about him, right? That he was willing to take on his issues. Well, I don't want to leave my fucking house. It's my house, you know? So when Charles comes home, go down the kitchen, 
I don't confront him. I don't yell or scream. And he comes in. He's like, we're going to the beach. We're going to the beach. And I just stand there. And I'm like, I talked to Sherry. And he falls apart. He starts crying. I open my arms. He falls into them. He's like, Hillary, I'm so sorry. I love you. I, I'm so sorry I didn't tell you. So then we call his therapist together. We're sitting on our back porch. And she seems to think that Charles is lying is a result of the trauma that he suffered as a kid. So when I hear that, I'm like, oh, I'm like totally filled with compassion. And my heart breaks for him, really. And he confesses that he knew he was still married. But he's like, Hillary, you were so excited to get married, and I love seeing you so happy. I just didn't want to upset you. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't make any sense. So I still want to go to the beach. <laughs> so we talk all night. You know, we do that thing. And then we head out to Bethany Beach in the morning. And for three and a half hours, I don't say a word. I'm just clenched. And I'm staring out the window, not even looking at anything, just like locked up. Do not feel. And we get to our friend's beach house. And we don't say a word. And we have a pretty good weekend. We go out to eat, play some games. And they have no idea that my stomach's in knots and I'm like ducking out to go to the bathroom to cry. I feel like such a liar. So on the way home from the beach, we talk some more. And Charles is, you know, I'm so sorry. You have to give me another chance. You have to, I'm going to spend the rest of my life making this up to you. What can I say? I love this man. I love him too much to walk away. We're not married now, right? Like, so now what? So I start by telling my closest friends. My friends, Stephanie and Michael, are like, no fucking way. You, of all people, miss honesty. How can you even consider staying with this man? And I end up getting a lawyer and I get an annulment. I'll still be in the relationship, but I won't be in a sham marriage. Cost me 1,500 bucks. Lie cost me 1,500 bucks. And Charles gets his divorce, finally. So we try to go back the way things were and to try to um, rebuild the trust that was lost, but it's not long before Charles starts telling more lies. And I find out more lies he's told. That 401k he bragged about, non-existent. That time he went to Florida to see his older sons and couldn't send me photos because he was so being in the moment, he never saw them. And one day, I'm getting out of Charles's car, right? And I'm like, damn, your car looks really good. Like, and I don't even notice those things, you know, but it, that's how good it looked. 
it looked, looked really clean. And he's like, yeah, I had some uh, kids at work clean. I'm like, damn, they did a good job. Like, I can't get over how clean this car is. He's like, yeah, they had a really good time doing it. Threw in a couple bucks, you know, that thing. I'm like, wow. I'm like, are you allowed to do that at work? Like, give them, oh, yeah, they, they thought it was empowering the kids. So the next day, I'm walking my little dog, Wilbur, and I'm wearing Charles's coat. And I reach in the pocket, and I pull out a receipt for like 25 bucks for like super car wash. Like, what the fuck? So I call him right up, and I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, why do you have to lie about such stupid things? I don't care about your car being washed. Time passes by. It's New Year's Day. And I'm actually feeling pretty good that he hasn't been lying. I'm thinking maybe he hasn't been lying. You know, maybe, I mean, I don't know. And we're actually creating a vision board for our couple, for our future. And we're cutting out words like trust and honesty and, you know, power, all that stuff, right? And we're, you know, we're sitting, sitting on the couch. We've got it all spread around us. And Charles gets a text. Ding. I'm like, huh. He picks it up, looks at it, puts it down. I'm like, oh, who's that? It's like guy from work. I'm like, okay. And by now we have this agreement that I get to double check him. So I'm like, give me the tech. I look. And it's, it's from a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours, John. That doesn't sound like a big deal, right? But in that moment, I was like, I am not going into another year these fucking lies. So I look at him and I said, Charles, I'm not doing it. I cannot go into the year, you know, with more lies. And he's like, he said, Hillary, please, like, I'm trying so hard. You've got to fight for Chillery. And I'm like, Chillery is dead, motherfucker. <laughs> and Charles moves out. I stay in bed for a week (laughs) and we don't have any communication for two months, like legit, like no texting, nothing for two months. And you know what? I'm feeling alive again. I'm feeling like the old Hillary. I'm like, oh my God, it feels so good to be free. You know, I'm seeing my friends for coffee or I'm seeing my friends in general. And then Charles wants to meet for coffee. And I'm like, all right, I'll meet you for coffee. I don't know. (laughs) I know. So um, we meet at the local coffee shop, and I actually had this whole list. It was great. And basically we sat down, and I looked him right in the eyes, and I said, you know, I'm very clear. I am not willing to be in a relationship with a liar. And he got it. He's like, I got it. Consequences of my actions. I'm like, good. So then he's like, hey, do you mind? Can we do some emailing back and forth? And I'm like feeling so solid and so like good. I'm like, sure, you can email. What harm is that going to do? Yeah. (laughs) So he starts emailing me. And of course, he's promising. He's, you know, more promises about I'm really not going to lie. I'm really on top of it now. And he tells me, hey, Remember when we were first 
dating. I was first coming to Baltimore, and that time I came right after I had my gallbladder surgery. Like, yeah. I never had any surgery. I'm like, well, wait a minute. You had Band-Aids right where the incision was. I Googled it. Yep. And in, one, in the email, he had stated that he was hoping to join the church choir, that we both go to this church. So I think it was like the day after, we actually met up for church, and afterwards, we're sitting in my car just talking. He's as out at this point, has his own apartment, and we're just talking, and he's still, we're trying to figure out why does he lie, why can he stop lying, all of that. In the middle of that conversation, I, had the th- I said, oh, by the way, did you talk to Patty about joining the choir? And he said, oh, yeah, right now. I said, Charles, I know you didn't talk to her right now. He's like, no, I really did. I'm like, Charles, this is one of those times. You're talking to me. You're lying. I do not give a shit whether or not you're in the fucking choir Just tell the truth. I know you're lying. No, Hillary, I swear I'm not. That night, I emailed Patty. Surprise, surprise. He didn't email her. So then I say something to him, and you know what he says? He's like, yeah, I figured you were going to email her. (laughs) So I'm like, this is fucking ridiculous. Like, this man can't not lie. It's like an alcoholic. Like, he just can't do it. And then I think, well, maybe if I could just accept that (laughs) and just know he's going to lie and not expect him not to lie... I know. It's pathetic. I hate myself. I got it. I'm like, we could still be together. I can never marry this man. Never. But we could still be in a relationship. I miss him. I love him. He's spending a ton of money on hypnosis, trying to find out why he's He's working so hard on himself. He goes to therapy every week. He has this rubber band on his wrist. Yeah. That every time he thinks about lying, he's supposed to go, bing! All right? So he's like, and I'm like, have you... I'm like, let me see your rubber band. <laughs> he's meditating all day. He joins a men's empowerment group. He's singing in the choir. I'm embarrassed to tell you. Yeah. I let him move back in. I know, I know, I know. (laughs) I feel so ashamed. I don't want to tell any of my friends. I cry in my bed. I cry in the shower. I cry in the hallway at work. I cry on my walks with Wilbur. I'm hating myself, hating myself for loving this man. What the fuck is wrong with me? Nothing. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So I go see a former therapist. 
And she's like, so what are you, why are you here? And I'm like, well, I'm depressed, but I'm not sure why. And then I start telling her the story of Charles. And as I start telling her the story of Charles, I'm like, oh my God, who am I fucking kidding? I know why I'm depressed. I don't even need to come to a therapist to do that. I'm lying to myself. And I cannot lie to myself anymore. I will not. So I go home and I sit Charles down and I look him in the eye and I'm like, it's done. I am so clear. You need to move out. I'm so clear. We both cry, but again, I'm clear. So I'm really clear. (laughs) And, you know, I really got that I love Charles, but I can't lie. And Charles loves me, but he can't not lie. And when I look back on the four years together when I defended him, and I believed in him, I would like to think it was because I loved him and I really thought that love would be enough, but it wasn't. And that's the truth. This is Risk. This is Tennis behind me now. And we just heard from Hillary Sigismondi, who you can find on Twitter at Hillary12001677. And before Hillary, we heard an interstitial by the Clovers. You remember the Clovers? They did uh, Love Potion Number 9 way back in the late 50s. And they also recorded that song, Rotten Cocksucker's Ball. They recorded it, I think, in 1953 and had no intention of ever releasing it. But Frank Zappa... (laughs) 
called the world's attention to the existence of this song, just like he called the world's attention to the existence of the song we played at the end of last week's episode by the Shags. Now, don't you wish you were at the post office right now? (laughs) No, no, you don't. You sure don't. And me neither. Running a business or keeping up with your schedule, I mean, you know, it takes a lot, and you just don't want to be making those trips. That's why you need Stamps.com. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. Simply use your computer to print Official U.S. postage, 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. And time isn't the only thing you'll be saving. With Stamps.com, you get $0.05 off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off shipping rates, not to mention it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer. Like, we've had it at Risk and the Story Studio for uh, maybe eight years now. No wonder over 700,000 other small businesses use Stamps.com as well. And right now, our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries... If you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie, and I've only made it through, like, five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android, so discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now, our final two stories on this week's episode are coming right up. In a little bit, we're going to hear a story that was recorded the last time that Risk was in Washington, D.C., a story by Miriam Zaring Halam. But before that, a story from an absolute and total newcomer, someone who had never shared a story at a live storytelling show before. This was recorded at our beloved home of all Risk live shows in New York City, Caveat. This is Linda Smith with a story we call Babes in Toyland.
I'm driving in my car and I'm driving with my 17-year-old daughter who is on the autism spectrum and she has developmental delays and I am exhausted because she is talking incessantly, which is normally what she does, but the conversation today is a little bit different than normally. <laughs> Evelyn makes sense out of the world by memorizing lists of things and then repeating them over and over and over again. So usually the lists have to do with TV shows because she loves TV shows. Her favorite is I Love Lucy. Oh. And I Love Lucy. Uh, she loves that, I think, because she's on the spectrum. Um, uh, usually emotions are very difficult for her to understand. But Lucy is right out there with all of her emotions. So if she's sad, she's crying out loud, right? Wow, Ricky. Uh, if she's uh, happy, she's jumping up and down. If she's upset about something, she calls Ethel and tells her about it, right? Evelyn likes that, I think, because it's not confusing, it's direct, it's clear, it's to the point. Normally, Evelyn will just go through the list of episodes. Hey, Ma, she'll say, do you know what season one, episode one is? And I'll say, no, Evelyn, I do not. And she'll say, you don't know? And I say, nope. And she says, the girls want to go to a nightclub, duh. <laughs> And then she says, how about season one, episode two? And I say, no, be a pal. And I say, oh, okay. And how about, and on and on it goes. Through six seasons, 180 episodes. <laughs> However, I wish that was the conversation we were having in the car today. Because today we're having a much different, different list where she has memorized an online catalog of adult toys <laughs> in preparation for today's mother-daughter outing to an adult store, which, hear me out, has been necessary, okay? It has come to my attention that she is using things that could be damaging to, let's say, relax. <laughs> um, so I've had to remove hairbrushes, remote controls, and action figures from Evelyn's room. And please don't ask me how I made this uncomfortable discovery that she was using these things to masturbate with, but I will never look at Tommy the Power Ranger in the same way again. <laughs> so, uh, it's very uncomfortable for me to be taking on this chore of bringing Evelyn to the adult store because one, in my mind, and also in Evelyn's, she's about 10 or 11 years old, though her body is quite assuredly 17. 
The other reason is because my own mother, the way she handled the first time seeing me hold hands with Steve Thompson when I was 12 years old, was to put a pamphlet on my bed that night that read the dangers of heavy petting. (laughs) Which clearly she saved from her own childhood in the 1940s. The pamphlet, I'm just realizing that the pamphlet, I spoke with my mom just a couple days ago about in preparation for the show, and my mom is 86 years old now, and I said, hey, Ma, where did you get this pamphlet from? And she said it was from the vestibule of St. Thomas More. (laughs) So, which explains that it had nothing to do with STDs or getting pregnant. No, the dangers of heavy petting showed these two cartoon girls whispering to each other about the third cartoon girl walking down the hall. And so one hand-holding episode with Steve Thompson resulted in my mother and the Catholic Church slut-shaming me. (laughs) So now I'm taking my daughter to an adult store to buy a dildo. (laughs) And she is going on and on and on with her list as we're walking into the store and she's saying it like it's some sort of like wish list for bad Santa. Like, I want anal beads and I want (laughs) Benoit balls and butt plugs. (laughs) And I'm maneuvering her to the wall of dildos. And when she looks up, she goes silent. She stops talking for the first time in her life. She has nothing to say. And in her defense, looking at a wall full of penises of every shape, size, color, and contour is quite uh, debilitating. (laughs) And it also occurs to me that she's probably never seen a penis in real life. And now she's looking at all these disembodied penises <laughs> wrapped in plastic and probably wondering where the rest of the person is. <laughs> so as we're standing there, a sales girl about the age of my daughter comes walking over and she says, hi, can I help you ladies? As if she's about to fit us for a new pair of shoes. <laughs> So I hope that this is going to get Evelyn to start talking again because my whole reason for bringing Evelyn to the store was so that I wouldn't have to say anything because Evelyn is bold and brazen and uninhibited and I figured she'd just walk in that store and get what she needed and we'd be gone and I'd never have to say a word. But she is still silent. So now I have to step up to the plate and be the mom and speak to this sales girl. And I say, what's your best seller? (laughs) 
And so she says, well, it depends on what you're looking for. And she starts to describe some of the benefits of each of the different types of dildos that we're looking at. And I'm looking at Evelyn to see if this is getting any kind of response from her, but it is not. She is just staring at the wall. And I said, Evelyn, do you want one that looks like a penis? And she said, no, no, I do not. <laughs> I said, okay, so that narrowed the selection down quite a bit. So now we're looking at these other uh, uh, dildos that just look, you know, nondescript, really. And the sales girl starts to now direct her attention to Evelyn and realizing that she's the customer. And she says, uh, would you want one that vibrates? And I said, well, I don't know if we need that because I don't want to hear when this is happening. <laughs> and the sales girl says, no, no, no. She says, they're completely silent. And then for some reason, I have a senior citizen moment and I say, well, in my day, they sounded just like a jackhammer. <laughs> to which the sales girl politely smiles and continues to talk to Evelyn. <laughs> and she starts to describe to Evelyn exactly what the vibrator can do and clitoral stimulation. And uh, Evelyn, um, that sounds pretty good to her, she says. So... Um, She's still not talking, but the woman is, you know, kind of, you know, trying to get her interested. So finally I said, Evelyn, why don't you just pick one? Is there anything here that you want? And she just shrugs her shoulders. And I said, Evelyn, just which one? Pick one. Nothing. And then I said, Evelyn, which one do you think Lucy Ricardo would pick? <laughs> And Evelyn reaches out and picks the one, the exact one, that I know had Lucy Ricardo been given the choice, she would have picked this pink, sleek, vibrating bullet because it is feminine, it is straightforward, and uh, unadorned just like Evelyn and Lucy. She starts to walk over to the register, the, the sales girl, and we're following her, and she starts to uh, talk to Evelyn about you know, what kind of batteries she's gonna need for this. She says, you'll need AAA batteries, and Evelyn says, oh, I use AAA batteries in my remote control, and she says, yeah, just like that. And then Evelyn says, uh, you know, uh, what, uh, what about anal beads? And I, and I said, why don't you just master this first? <laughs> we'll come back another time for that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the woman starts to, uh, she says to Evelyn, would you like to take, you know, this out? And I'll, you know, put the batteries in. I'll show you how to turn it on and off, how to work it. And Evelyn says, okay, so she's doing that, and she's describing to Evelyn how to use it and how to clean it, the importance of keeping it clean. As we're all standing there, the three of us, it occurs to me that 
this is the way that women should be talking about sex. And forever banished from my mind were those two whispering cartoon girls. My big red c- This is my big red c- I love an epic science nerd who happens to be the daughter of similarly epic science nerds. And so my whole life I've known that I'm going to grad school. It's an inevitability for me. But right after I graduate from college, I decide, meh, the inevitable can wait, just for a year. And so I move to the Middle East, to Abu Dhabi, uh, to start working, teaching chemistry to college students. And more importantly, I'm there to have an adventure, to travel and see the world before I'm locked away in an ivory tower. And those first few months, I do exactly that. I see Roman ruins in Lebanon. I gallop across the Saharan desert on horseback. I even get robbed by a monkey in Sri Lanka. And so I'm really like living the dream. I'm doing the thing. But come February, reality starts creeping its way back in. I get my acceptance letter to start grad school in the fall, and I put off actually accepting that acceptance letter until the very last minute, until the April 15th deadline. And that morning, I am working in the university library, trying to like really psych myself up to go and put that letter in the mailbox, finally get it over with. And when I finally work up the will to do that, and I go outside, I hear that mailbox door creak open, and I start thinking, "Ah, maybe I can defer a year. I still haven't seen the Taj Mahal, haven't floated in the Dead Sea. Grad school, it'll it'll be waiting for me. But I think, no, Miriam, like, get real, get with the program, and I just finally pop that letter in. And as I hear the door close, I start to feel my freedom, this time of adventure, starting to slip away. As I turn to walk back into the library, I spot my coworkers, Kevin and Sam, chatting just outside. And I remember that they'd been hyping up this trip that they were going to take to Oman that weekend. And so without thinking, I just run up to them and say, hey, I want it on your trip. And they look at each other super confused because we're not exactly friends. (laughs) Kevin and Sam are the kind of California bro that would wear uh, those flip-flops with beer bottle openers in the sole because you never know when beer clock's going to strike. That's not exactly my kind of scene. We'll just put it that way. But they're also super, super nice. And so without missing a beat, Kevin says, yeah, that sounds sweet. And Sam jumps in with a, but I call shotgun. 
And I think that's fine. That sounds fine. And they say that the game plan is we're going to meet outside of our apartment complex at 6 p.m. and drive out from there. I don't ask them anything about what we're actually going to be doing in Oman because, honestly, I don't give a shit. I'm just there to prove to myself that there's still adventures to be had. And so when 6 o'clock rolls around, I climb into the back seat and I lay out, getting real comfortable, neglecting my seatbelt for the six-hour drive ahead of us. And we start chatting, and I slowly start to drift off to sleep. And I don't know how long I'm out, but I wake up to the sound of tires screeching and the feeling of the car spinning and then flipping and flipping and flipping. And as we're flipping, I feel my heart start racing as I feel my unbuckled body just bumping around the inside of the car. And I think, God, I just want this to be over. But I'm also terrified that when it is, that'll be the end of me too. But eventually the car stops and somehow we're right side up and I'm alive. I feel fine. I'm kind of crammed down uh, on the floor of the car where your feet go. And so I just have to open the car door and sort of roll my body out. And when I stand up, I see that we're at the bottom of a sand dune, somewhere in the middle of the Omani Desert. And it is totally pitch black, except for the light from our car. And I see that the roof of the car is smashed in, and there's just glass everywhere. But thankfully, I catch sight of Kevin and Sam, and they're unbuckling their seatbelts, and they get out, and they're totally fine. They just have like a few scratches, but otherwise perfectly fine. And, and when we're all together, I just say the first thing that pops into my mind, which is, thank God I didn't soil myself. <laughs> and, and as we start, we start laughing, and, and as I'm laughing, I start to feel this pain just shoot up my back. And it catches me off guard, and my knees buckle, and I pass out. And the next thing I know, I'm in a curtained-off hospital room, sitting next to Sam and across from this small, balding, mustachioed doctor. And the pain is so bad, but I'm trying to just focus in on what the doctor is trying to tell me. And he says, ma'am, your x-ray results show that you've broken your shoulder blade. And then he gets this big smile on his face, and he says, you should be dead. And he says this with such utter glee that I have no fucking clue what to make of it. And so I don't say anything at all. I just stare at him. And he explains, you see, ma'am, shoulder blade injuries are extremely rare. It means that you've suffered an intense impact. You should have many injuries, fatal injuries. And I'm thinking, fatal injury? What? What? Uh, and I, I can't come up with anything to say. And so he continues, for example, ma'am, you could have punctured your shoulder blade and slowly suffocated on the side of the road. And still I can't say anything. And so he takes my silence as permission to continue and he elaborates all of these different ways that I could have and should have died that night. And I walk out of the hospital just stunned with nothing but a sling on my arm. And Sam and I meet Kevin back at a hotel, 
And Kevin's just gotten back from filing a police report. And he tells us that what probably happened was that the tire slipped off the side of the road, and when he tried to correct it back on, it sent our car spinning and then flipping. And he says, here's the wild part, though. Just a couple hours before our crash, the same thing happened in the same spot. Two guys and one girl, except they all died. Dude, we could have died. And that idea just kind of lodges in my mind that night. I can't sleep because the pain in my back is so intense. It feels like somebody took a sledgehammer to my left side and is just kind of like pushing their thumbs into the cracks that it's made. And so instead of sleeping, my mind kind of wanders off thinking about those three people. You know, it could have been us. Was it us? I mean, like, maybe we're living in some sort of, like, alt-timeline, weird, bizarre afterlife. And, you know, if I should be dead, then am I? I mean, I don't know what it's like to die. And so maybe this is it. And I carry that feeling with me to Abu Dhabi when we go back the next day and into work when I go back the next morning. And I walk into the university cafeteria to get myself some coffee, to power myself through my day. I still haven't slept uh, in two nights. And when I walk in, I spot Kevin and Sam in the cafeteria, and they're huddled, they're, they're surrounded by a crowd of people. And I start walking towards them, and I hear Kevin say, yeah, it's wild, the car's totally wrecked, but look, and he pulls up his sleeve, only a few scratches. And Sam sees me approaching them with my droopy, sunken, sleepless eyes. And he says, "Ah, you know, Miriam, she had to go to the hospital, but she looks great now. Miriam, you look great. And I stop in my tracks. Great? I don't feel fucking great. I can't move my upper body without excruciating pain shooting up my back. And I haven't slept in days because every time I close my eyes, I imagine myself as roadkill. But I don't want to say any of this. I don't want to disrupt their fun adventure story. I don't want to be a bummer. And so I fake a smile and I say, yeah, great. And I spin around and head straight to the bathroom so I can cool the fuck down. And I pull out my phone and I debate calling my parents to tell them what's going on. I still haven't told them about the accident. When I got home from Oman, uh, we Skyped, but I took my sling off because I didn't want them asking me any questions. My grandpa was dying at the time of cancer and I didn't want to worry my parents any more than they were already worried. I didn't want them to come and get me in the middle of all that. So I, I decide in that bathroom stall that I'm just going to keep it up. I can make it through. And so I pull myself together and I walk out and I put on a great show for the rest of the day. But when I get back home that night, that soundtrack switches back on. I should be dead. I must be dead. I should be dead. I must be dead. Now, I fully recognize that I'm delusional. I am a scientist, very rational, but I'm, I'm just also worried that I'm right. And so I decide therapy. 
therapy is going to fix me. I've never done therapy before, but at least a therapist has to listen to me. Maybe they can talk me out of this. And so the next morning, I go to the University Health Center, and I make an appointment. And a couple days later, I walk into an office where I'm greeted by a woman who tells me to have a seat on her couch. And she asks, what can I do for you today? What's going on? Tell me about it. And I'd spent the night before not sleeping and just kind of practicing, outlining exactly what I wanted to say to her. But in that moment, I just panic and blurt out, how do I know I'm not dead? (laughs) And her eyes go real big. And she is silent for an excruciating second. And then she bursts out laughing. Well, that's a crazy question, isn't it? And I just want to sink into the crease of that couch and disappear. I want to shout, no shit, that's fucking crazy. Why else would I be here? But instead, I just say, yeah, anyway, so I'm feeling kind of nervous about grad school. As if that's the reason I'm here. I walk out of her office an hour later, and I never go back. And I start to live this kind of double life. You know, on the outside, I'm on the mend. I'm going through the motions. I look totally normal. But inside, I can't shake this feeling like, what's this all for? What's the point? Like this inner person screaming, you idiot, you're dead. Why the fuck are you grading chemistry homework? And the more I try to ignore it, the more it grows. So that when I move back to the States later, a few months later, my body is healed. But I'm just mentally not all there. I, I'm, I'm detached, disconnected. And I move into a group house in Brooklyn with a friend uh, who I met in Abu Dhabi and her girlfriend, Katie. And Katie and I don't know each other super well, but a few nights in, we decide we're going to have like a getting to know you thing. And so at night, we take a few beers out into the yard. And when we're a few drinks in, she says, you know, Rach told me about this accident that you had. It sounds kind of crazy. Are you, are you okay? How are you doing? And it's the first time that anybody's asked me, just me, how I am. And I immediately start to cry. I'm a crier, but I haven't cried in months. It's like that part of me just was blocked off. And feeling that feeling of those hot, wet tears coming down my face was such a relief. And the words just start pouring out of my mouth about the acceptance and my acceptance letter and the accident and my shitty Omani doctor and my asshole shrink. It just all comes out. And I don't know how long I'm talking, but when I'm done, Katie gets up and she gives me this huge hug. And it's so tight that my shoulder blade starts to ache a little. And she says... I'm so glad you're alive. And you know, this whole time my mind had kind of gotten stuck on this image of me slowly suffocating in the desert that night. And so I'd never given anybody a chance to assure me that that night 
in this world, I got up and I kept going. And when Katie finally lets go of me, I let myself think for the first time, I should be dead, but I'm not. Thank you. all for this week's episode folks this is lenny kravitz behind me now and we just heard from mariam zering halam who you can find on twitter and instagram at webmz underscore before that a little interstitial by our episode editor jeff barr and i'll tell you uh of course i am not going to be announcing the live shows that we had scheduled uh going forth into you know, the several months ahead of us, because all of that is kind of on hold for the time being. Also, in-person workshops, we're, we'll have a lot of announcements to make this week. If you pay attention to us over on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Risk Show. Our school, where all our storytelling training happens, is at thestorystudio.org. And we already teach a lot of online workshops there, where you can be learning storytelling with various other students and seeing and hearing them telling their stories and getting feedback from them and the teacher in real time at our online classes. Chances are we are going to be having some special events happening online for both Risk and the Story Studio, where, you know, like, for example, our upcoming live show at Caveat in New York City will probably be taking place at Caveat, but without a live audience there, and we will look for ways to live stream it or some other way to put it out online so that you can attend that show. In other words, you should very much just stay tuned and check out our social media to find out what exactly is happening as we move through the next few weeks and months. My own one-on-one consultations with people are already happening online. If you go to kevinallison.com, that will take you to Pensite, which is a site that facilitates, sets up these meetings where I can see you, you can see me, we can talk for a half hour or an hour about 
a story you'd like to work on, a business presentation you'd like to make, a creative project you're trying to launch, or just checking in. I've done mentoring sessions with people there. So that is all at kevinallison.com. Join the conversation amongst Risk uh, staff and Risk fans, Story Studio faculty. These you can find at the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group or the subreddit Risk Podcast. And if you ever want to reach out to me directly, I'm at Kevin at Risk show.com. Remember, for the time being, stay home. Wash your hands a lot, and the devices that your hands are always touching. Engage in plenty of self-care. Meditate. Journal. Make sure you're exercising at home. Definitely checking in with people, reaching out to people. Uh, You know, if you have a therapist, you can meet your therapist over Skype, probably, right? So, uh, let's all just hang in there. You know, we love you here at risk and we're all in this together folks today's the day take a risk but not going out and getting sick